You are listening to a Laison Lumineur podcast. Hello, this is Sandra Hindman, founder and president of Laison Lumineur. We specialize in manuscripts, miniatures, historic jewelry, and other small-scale works of art from the Middle Ages and the Renaissance. This occasional series records our lectures and gallery talks, insights from new publications, and interviews with collectors and scholars. Our aim is to offer an ever-wider public tools for learning about the diversity of our activities and the breadth of our interests. Welcome, and please enjoy today's podcast. I'm here today in the New York Gallery with Herb Kessler, Herbert Leon Kessler. You probably know him as. And Herb has very generously agreed to come and do this podcast on the new edition of his book published in 2004, Seeing Medieval Art. And the new edition is called Experiencing Medieval Art. You probably all know that Herb is a professor of many, many, many years of teaching, mostly uh, originally at University of Chicago, after that at Johns Hopkins. He's taught also at Harvard, he's taught at Williams, and he's now retired, but as active as ever. So let me, um, let me introduce you all to Herb by asking Herb, maybe before we turn to the book, something about where he's from and how he became an art historian. What led him to art history? But first, where are you from, Herb? You're from Chicago, aren't you? Yes, I was born on the south side of Chicago and grew up there near Midway Airport and never set foot on the campus of the University of Chicago until I enrolled there because in the 50s, it was considered a hotbed of communism, and so my good Chicago public school teachers forbade us from going there, uh, even go visiting the campus. Um, I spent three years studying at the University of Chicago and then went on to Princeton to get a PhD. Now, I met you at Chicago. I was an undergraduate at Chicago, too. I met you when you were a young professor at um, Chicago in, I can't remember, 1965. Is that your exactly. first? Exactly, I that's started. Your first, yeah, first year I teaching. I think you were in my first class. I, your first class there was Northern With, Renaissance Art. And there was also Peter Parshall right. and Keith Mux. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Now, the rumor, I mean, we all considered you this brilliant whiz kid, and the rumor was, and maybe this isn't true, that you had been a quiz kid at, in your youth on the radio show. Not true. Absolutely <laughs> not true. <laughs> okay. But you did enter Chicago early yes. and then graduate early. Yes. Because you started teaching at the age of 24, which is very young, isn't it? Yes. But in those days, and those of you who are listening to this who maybe looking for jobs in the field, take a deep breath. In those days, there was a shortage of PhDs in the humanities and a shortage especially of art historians. And so the uh, Woodrow Wilson Foundation supported 
young PhD students on the condition that they finish the PhD in four years total so the market could be supplied. And when I went on the, the market in 65, I had offers from, or near offers from Oregon, Toronto, Yale, Chicago. It was a whole different world. Wow, yeah. Penn. Certainly yeah. a different world than now where you, you know, want to make sure you can place your students, but you have no idea if you can. Exactly. Um, well, let's turn to this book. Uh, and since I don't teach any longer, I don't normally sit around reading surveys of medieval art, but um, someone who is a student, um, PhD student in Chicago, um, told me how amazing it was, and I quickly um, went out and got a copy. So the original one is published in 2004, and 2019 is not so much later for the second edition. The title changed, you added a chapter, and you changed many things. So really I want to know a little about the impetus for doing a re-edition so soon after, and um, you know, a little bit about the second edition, which well, is not really a second edition, isn't it? A new book. Well, the title is, in a way, clever. It both uh, signals that it's somehow related to the 2004 book, but also that it's different. I don't especially love the word experiencing, but that also gives the user the idea that seeing has been superseded by multi-sensory experience of works of art not just looking at them. And there are many other changes that reflect it. But the, on the question of the speed with which a new edition was conceived and commissioned, actually, it reflects the field, which is growing in very interesting ways and which now uh, has gone in directions that seeing uh, medieval art doesn't even suggest. So. The purpose of the book is to bring readers, to, to the extent possible, up to date with the currents of medieval studies art history. Now, both books are very object-oriented, but maybe the second one, the second edition, or experiencing, as it were, is more so. And I was especially struck by the choices of such unusual objects. I mean, this you have many of the canonic objects of the Middle Ages, but in the first chapter alone, I found three things I'd never seen before, and I've been a medievalist all my life. And that you, and you so, fell for the purpose of the book is to recenter the field in many ways. I wouldn't call it a survey. In some ways, it's a survey of current literature, or literature of the last 20 years. But I wanted to shift attention, for example, to Spain, which has been ignored or in, in the field for a generation or so. Not ignored, but marginalized. I was with, um, at a, a conference recently with Mary Carruthers, who had never been to Spain. So one of the leading medievalists had not been to Spain till 2019 herself, which is itself an interesting uh, subject. But back to this selection of objects. Yes, I could not possibly ignore some of the canonical monuments, 
and I didn't. I thought that would be to try, even try to do, like Amiens Cathedral or the Utrecht Psalter. But I wanted very much to shake up the field by the selection of objects. Yeah, I mean, in the like within the first five pages of the book, one sees uh, this butterfly reliquary that fortunately there's a good color plate of, and a game board. And I don't know why I've never seen the fan of, um, oh. of Charles the Bald, but they're extraordinary objects and they are situated very well in this chapter called Object also. Yes, I mean, I think you make the point that, um, I mean, when I studied medieval art, we never looked at small scale objects, um, certainly not jewelry. The butterfly is some kind of cross between a reliquary and a jewel. Yes. Um, it was mounted. Someone wore it, I think. Yeah, I encourage everyone to look at this extraordinary um, butterfly object. And then there are other aspects of the book that are quite different from the first. The, the, I guess the, the seeing chapter also, ha you've changed the chapter that was seeing in the beginning, yes. the first book, to the second book. Exactly. And I think the last chapter is now called Experiencing, to engage with the literature that deals with touch, but also the other th senses. Many scholars now are interested in taste and um, hearing, especially. A lot of Smell. And Medieval smell, churches exactly. were full of exactly. incense. Exactly. Um, and there's wonderfully interesting literature now on that subject. But also in that chapter, I consider, I think I call it subject, because to bookend with the first chapter. Oh, yes, object, object subject. and subject, yeah. because you do have the physical thing, but you also then at the end, the perception of that thing through all the five senses and the importance of emotional reactions like fear or love, joy, play is a big new theme in the book, the ludic aspect of medieval art. Yeah, and you have this little game board, which I've also never seen as one of your <laughs> first three objects in the book. And then when I went to the internet, I found that people play this game today. There are many, yes. many uh, versions. Um, so that was really fascinating. And other, um, I mean, there's a focus on Jewish art, which I don't think there was much. Not a focus, the, there was a little in that. Well, yeah. a focus. I mean, you bring in illustrations from yes. the Haggadah, from, you know, um, manuscripts, uh, non-Christian yeah. manuscripts in this book, too. That wonderful Haggadah with the making of matzah. So it has to do with manufacturing of edible, in this case, ritual, but also display of those objects and rituals. And in that point, I, and I bring that in because there are many ways to make objects, and one of them is through memorized routine. So people who made matzah knew how to do it. It was in their bodies. They didn't have to read formulae or look at patterns or whatever, so I use that to engage Hebrew culture, but also manufacturing. Right, right. I want to talk a little bit about the cover of the book because interestingly when I said to someone in my team, order me this book, it's the new cutting-edge book on medieval art, 
Herb Kessler. They went to the web and they ordered me seeing um, oh the God. first edition because they said, the cover looks like a Gerhard Richter painting. It has to be this book that you meant, not looking at the date. I thought that was such an interesting comment. And indeed, the cover of um, Seeing is the sky that abstracted could be a modern painting. And then how did you choose the cover for Experiencing, which is this page from an apocalypse? Well, you, you want to talk about yeah. it. Or did you choose it? Maybe your publisher chose it. But together, we, we chose it. And it's an interesting question. Uh, one of my colleagues hates it intensely. I, I rather like the cover. The first cover of seeing medieval art was exactly to shock people into an awareness that there's a, a large component of medieval art that's abstract, that actually interfaces with, or let's put it this way, we look at certain medieval art objects now because they are abstract. And indeed, there's a team now, Elena Gertzman and Vincent Dubier, who are, that's their project. It's a funded project to study uh, abstract medieval art. And there was a conference in Princeton in May preliminary to that. So that's itself interesting. And that cover of seeing medieval art has become become iconic mm -hmm. in yeah, I can see why. And so what about and this cover? So this, this cover, you know, it's not, I mean, I, I, I can kind of imagine why you chose it, but it's not so sexy, as it were. No, <laughs> so. but it's almost, well, it's in dialogue with the first cover to shift my attention and my reader's attention to the other direction. So it's heavily, it's overdetermined iconography. It's loaded with references. It's in an apocalypse manuscript and it shows, it's a detail of a mid-13th century English apocalypse and it shows the Roman armies returning to Vespasian um, from the Holy Land with the Holy Face. So it has Holy Face as a veil, as the temple veil. And people are touching it. People are touching it, not only that, but Titus, who's carrying it, or his men are carrying it, the face of Christ is in the form of a Roman bust. So he's actually, although there's a veil, he's actually holding a Roman bust. So it get, it's right there in a nutshell, condenses the idea of object. Face of Christ <clears throat> is both a veil and a sculpture. Mm -hmm. And that's part of the dichotomy. It also shows Jews being then cast out of the picture, so it engages uh, that theme as well. I mean, while we're on the subject of pictures and um, the object and then the subject, uh, the bookends of the book, as you nicely put it, um, the book is so object-oriented and the discussion of objects, even though you don't do style and chronology at all, which you know, we don't, which isn't missing from my point of view, but it's so object-oriented that it's frustrating to see these pictures mostly in black and white and mostly, if I may say so, of not very good quality. And I publish a lot in the gallery and 
four color printing costs the same as black and white printing now. I'm, you must, I, I don't know, I, I wonder what happened that this book isn't richly illustrated with pictures that make your argument about the objectness of medieval art more rich. Well, it's a complicated question and I'll try to give a few, make a few points in my answer. There, you already touch on several aspects. One is color, the other is quality of the black and white. So on color, the press, of course, the series itself is directed toward historians of medieval art, students of history, medieval literature, and cognate disciplines. So, so medievalists writ large, not necessarily yes, and, picture people. Yes, and as, but you're an art historian who read the book as an art historian, and you see that I work from the object. So I too would have preferred color, more color, if possible. The publisher put less emphasis on that, greater number, that you didn't make the point, but it's much more richly illustrated than the first one. We did increase that. And we got very good material. That is, the University of Toronto Press subsidized quite handsomely the acquisition of the photo material. Ironically, much of what is printed in black and white is printed from colored digital How images, sad. but in black and white. So that then becomes a question of economy. And the University of Toronto Press did surveys and in their administration tried to calculate a price that would be good for students and more color would have increased the price according to their calculation and therefore uh, had an effect on the market. The issue of color, uh, the issue of black and white is very different and I agree with you completely that the quality of the reproduction of the black and white material uh, should be improved. And I think one of the things UTP does is issue a, a, a kind of second printing soon after and I think uh, you are not the only one who's made this point. I feel it myself, and I hope we can, in the second printing, improve it. Then if there's a new edition of this book, maybe they can improve the color program too because the material's there. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Well, that would be, we would all welcome that. I certainly would. I wanted to get you to talk about, and it's a little abstract to just um, keep saying, as I have, that it's such an object-oriented book and all the senses are represented. So I wonder if we could talk about one object, like the butterfly, which is really the object, a butterfly reliquary that you open the book with. And that in some ways, it's the, the object and the subject and many different senses um, coexist in that object. Could you just spend a couple of sentences telling us um, why you chose this very unusual object and what its symbolism is? It's a, an enameled, reliquary, small-scale butterfly. We'll, well take it from there. Of, it's a kind of facsimile of a butterfly. It's very small, and it looks like a decorative pin for a court 
might woman, be a Tiffany right? pin, yes. the, the 13th century equivalent of a Tiffany pin. And when you look more closely at it, the um, body of the, the caterpillar, worm-like body, centerpiece centerpiece of the two wings turns out to be a crucifixion a cru uh, of the body of Christ really it's on a cross and then you look more closely and the eyes are pearls and it opens up as a symbolic rep naturalistic representation the back of it then is a cross reliquary. It has compartments, one cross-shaped, <clears throat> and then the four corners that contain saints' relics and um, a fragment of the true cross. So it becomes, first of all, I selected it because it is unusual. It is playful in leading the viewer to see it as two things at once, at least two things at once butterfly and crucifix and it plays front and back and that all relates to the theme of the worm that dies the, the caterpillar that dies and gets transformed into an ethereal colorful beautiful thing that can fly to the heavens and that becomes then the uh, metaphor for Christ himself in the tomb then resurrected and for Christians who through faith can uh, be victorious over death and go to heaven and indeed it was in its turn interned in another medieval object a crucifix a wood crucifix. But wasn't it, am I right that it was actually, it certainly wasn't a pin or a fibula on a woman's gorgeous garment. It was worn by a priest Probably. In, a, in a leather, and we still have oh, yes. a, in a leather container. Exactly, the correct? leather container still survived. So it was worn probably by a priest, that's supposition, but then put in a leather pouch for storage, probably for protection. And then around 1400, it was the relic put inside a crucifix for a bishop in Regensburg. And that's why it's so well preserved, actually, mm -hmm. as it was. It's so interesting. And here we have, you know, the sense of touch and, um, and it sat on the skin. So the interaction between the body, which is the subject in a way, and the object. But also... It's this iridescent enamel, very mm -hmm. beautiful enamel, which picks up on that metamorphosis idea. Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. you see parts of it as blue, and then they shift to yellow, and it's, del it's delicate change, like mm -hmm. a butterfly. Well, I mean, I encourage everyone to read the book because there's so many objects that, um, even objects that we know well that are, you know, richly um, to life in this um, book. I wanted to ask a few questions that sort of turn around your career as a medievalist, a long-term medievalist. Uh, among the people who you've encountered professionally from the time you were a student um, on, is there one person who stands out, who changed your life, who, you know, 
you would say, I am how I am today because of this person, for example. Oh my God, one person. Well, it could be a short list too, but... Yeah, know, let's I'm... do a short list, but I'll try to rank them. So those, of, those listeners who've known me or known my work would assume I'd say Kurt Weitzman. That's what I thought you would say, but I wondered. And Kurt Weitzman was very important for me. He was my doctor father, um, supervisor of my dissertation, and then a colleague. I mean, we, we collaborated on two books. But I'd say I've actually been working against the grain. I respect him. I owe him a lot. But I've been working against him in many ways, against his work throughout my career. And in fact, the second book he and I did together, our parts are separate because... You couldn't was, agree. <laughs> we could, well, I was, so, I was so antagonistic to his part. He then said, well, then you write, you know, and I did. So in that case, sure, Weizmann comes first. But maybe my first medieval teacher was also determining. It was Margaret Rickert, one of the mm. truly fascinating scholars. The reconstructed Carmelite exactly. missile. The children played with scraps of manuscripts. So she had a fascinating story, as I understand it. She was the sister of the greatest Chaucerian scholar, Edith Rickert, of that generation, and maybe one of the handful of all time. And Edith had to work in England to work on Chaucer manuscripts. And when she came home to Chicago, I think it was, during one of her visits, to her great surprise, her parents presented her with a little sister, a late child that was not expected, and that was Margaret. And then the parents, who were obviously old anyway at this point, died, and it was, as I understand the story, left to Edith Ricker to raise Margaret. And what could she do with this little girl? She was a scholar who had no family of her own, so she made Margaret her assistant, obviously when Margaret was old enough, to work on the illuminations. So Margaret was an accidental illuminations of Chaucer manuscripts, which Edith was not interested. Anyway, that's the backstory. When I encountered Margaret, she was in post-retirement. Chicago had brought her back. Very distinguished scholar, had been tapped by the then great series of art history books, the Pelican History of Art, to write the book, an American, to write the book on English medieval manuscript illumination. So a kind of doubled honor. So she was very distinguished, but she was treated very badly by the University of Chicago. She never made full professor, so she was a bit angry, and she was not kind to me at all but she taught me, and I owe a great deal to her about concerning the importance of rigorous scholarship and looking at objects. And indeed, you said that you referred to the reconstructed Carmelite Missal, and that's a good example. She found pieces of a manuscript that had been dismembered 
in the 19th century and then reassembled them through very diligent detective work and study into an, an important missile. Interesting, that's great. I mean, this is not, this um, interview is not about me, of course, but I, maybe I should say that I too have a short list. And in fact, you are on uh, that short uh, list <laughs> um, because I wouldn't have gone to graduate school in medieval art had it not been for your Northern Renaissance course my senior year in college and you encouraging me to go to graduate school. Well, so that's there. I'm a medievalist yes, that's because a of con you. That's a con <laughs> real contribution. So, but um, I would ask one more name. Oh, okay, please. Georges Didi Uberman. Oh, right. Interesting. And he taught... From the Hopkins period? Yes. Where, yes. He was at Hopkins. We became friends. Mm. And his writings, we are not close friends, I mean, because we don't see each other, but he taught me a lot about materiality, let's call it. Interesting. It's an interesting group. Um, I had another question that's maybe a little unusual, but that's fun, um, especially since there are so many objects in this wonderful book. Um, if money were no object and everything were available, wasn't in museums, or it could leave museums, what would be the one medieval object that you would want to live with at home? Oh my God! Desert, that, the desert island question. Or well, it's well there are two. It's like you could live with it at home, and then maybe you would take a different medieval object if you had to go to a desert island. So this is a tough question. If it were a manuscript, and I am always a manuscript person, which is not in vogue, but there we are. Um, Gee, I think it's very in vogue. Oh no, manuscripts are out. no. Some of the New scholars really avoid wow. illuminated manuscripts okay. because they immediately trigger things like bad, you know, iconography and scholarly things. But and for medieval art, they are so much about the experience. You turn the pages. Oh, I told anyway, you carry go ahead. them and all okay, that. Okay, go okay. ahead. So I would probably want to retreat to my study or to a desert island with the Cantigas de Santa Maria. It's a manuscript, on the one hand, very well known, and on the other, not known at all. So it's the subject, it's a four-volume, uh, illuminated Galician Portuguese... Book of stories. Uh, uh, um, book of songs. Songs and stories, yeah. And brilliantly illuminated for Alfonso X, the wise and infinitely fascinated. It's been studied by many scholars. Curiously, talk about objects, if I can digress a bit, because it was so important and issued in a facsimile edition, it's now virtually inaccessible. It's made, mm. it, it, one volume is in Florence and, one, and three volumes are in the Escorial. And I was working from the facsimile in my study in Florence, we have an apartment where I can look onto Santa Croce, which is right next to the uh, Biblioteca Nazionale in Florence. And I was working on the Cantigas, and I said, 
I should go and look at the manuscript. Mm -hmm. And everyone told me, Spaniards, Italians, you'll never see it. They don't show it. Hmm. And I tried to pull strings, and everyone said, you'll ne they'll never show it to you. So I was frustrated, and I kept looking at Santa Croce, and I said, damn, how can it be? I'm working on this manuscript, and I, it's almost within sight, and everyone's telling me I can't see it. So I emailed the curator of manuscripts, and she said, come any morning next week, <laughs> and I'll show it to you. So sometimes you just have yeah, to. Yeah, you just luck out. Uh -huh. And she showed it to me, like, let me photograph it, and I learned things about it mm. I never saw in the facsimile. Right. Absolutely. Gold, one of the things is gold doesn't reflect well in facsimiles. Mm. And in, the, in this ca case, I was interested in a way in which light on gold transforms the imagery. And then, having done that, I was going to Spain, and I said, damn, why don't I go see... See the other volumes. And again, everyone said, I've never been allowed to see... I've never been allowed to see... And this time I, I did network and got to see the one in the... Esco uh, one of the volumes, the one I wanted to see in the Escorial. Well, and since there are four volumes and it's so richly illuminated, if they don't find you on this desert island for even years, you'll be well entertained. Exactly. <laughs> it's infinitely so, rich. Yeah, interesting, interesting. Well, I mean, this is a remarkable book. You know, I think we've already given listeners an idea that it's quite different from your normal survey of medieval art. And, of course, you're really well-known for your wide-ranging influence with students. You have many, many students, people who are undergraduates like me, many, many, many PhD students. But is this the book that you are most proud of in your career as a medievalist? Or are there others that you, you know, where does this stand as part of your, you know, scholarly mission as a medievalist oh, I love and a teacher. I love that book. I hope it has an influence. I know that seeing medieval art had an influence where I hadn't predicted it. So the first chapter of seeing medieval art on materiality is much cited. I hope objects is too. But you use the word survey, so maybe I should explain that experiencing medieval art, like seeing, is not quite a survey. It does have a certain range, narrower than seeing medieval art, but its intention is not to survey art history as much as current art historical literature, to make it available in a narrative form. Um, it's rich in footnotes. The book is rich in footnotes because it's intended to distill many of the topics that scholars are working on now and then to direct students, readers, on how to pursue those topics of interest. I should say, by the way, that we do a revised edition. There will be more topics. They keep falling out of the, the scholarly world in, into uh, currency. Abstraction is one. Mm -hmm. It's touched on there, but it's becoming um, a hot topic. But And I had a student who came to me this week who told me that he's working on mountains. Exactly. And that I, was... That I, I mean, is, and it was like, really? 
And then he said, people didn't climb mountains in the Middle Ages. And um, look at these mountains in this Carolingian, or maybe it was an Ottonian manuscript. What do you think they mean? And I, I thought that was fascinating. Um, but that's exactly the topic that I would add right now, is ecology, mm -hmm, eco-art mm -hmm, history. Mm -hmm. There's a lot of new work coming out on the relationship of art and nature. Mm -hmm. And holy mountain is one of those right. topics, holy forests, and that would be in, Mm -hmm. is it touched on there, it was coming to the fourth, but a lot of what's in that book is not mine at all, but uh, that of other scholars I admire. That said, back to your question, the sleeper, the book I'm truly proudest of, there's no question, is poetry and paintings in the first Bible of Charles the Bible. Mm -hmm. Why? Working with a colleague, first of all, I believe in collaboration mm -hmm. with the great um, medievalist, medieval historian, Paul Dutton. We, were, we figured out, reading poems and paintings, not only who actually did one of the masterpieces of medieval art, the other candidate for the desert island, by the way, which bears the number Latin one, at the Bibliothèque Nationale in Paris, and it's truly great work in terms of intellectual complexity. We not only figured out who had created it. Latin one what, is the um, first Bible the of first Charles, so-called so, mm -hmm. so mm -hmm. Vivian Bible. But we, it's always called Vivian Bible, but in fact we argue, and I think we're totally right, that it was developed as a, an attempt to criticize Viv, Count Vivian and the practice of appointing secular abbots in Carolingian monasteries. So he was a count, but made abbot of St. Martin's. And the pictures and the poetry were very subtle uh, subtly orchestrated at, to subvert Count Vivian. So that's why yeah. I insist on calling it the first Bible of Interesting, Charles. interesting. But I like very much the reciprocity that it was developed between Paul and me, mm -hmm. between the poetry and the painting, mm -hmm. and between the author of the poems, who we think is also mm -hmm, the... Mm -hmm. Interesting. Well, I think we're going to have to wind this up, but um, I, you mentioned how this book will be useful to scholars and in teaching and, students, and for scholarship yeah. and students. But I also want to say, I think that it is a book that the general, int interested general public, fascinated by the Middle Ages, can pick up and even just read in. You don't need to have a, a chronology of medieval art to appreciate um, different chapters or descriptions of different objects. So I'm partly interested in doing this podcast to encourage the world at large to experience um, the Middle Ages. I hope they do. Thank you, Herb. Thanks, that was wonderful. Andy.
I'm Keegan Gebford, Vice President of Les Illuminaires. Up next, we'll be in New York for the International Antiquarian Book Fair from March 5th to March 8th. We'll also be exhibiting at Tefoff Maastricht from March 7th to March 15th. Hope to see you there. You can reach us online through our website, laysonlumineer.com, or through Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. You are always welcome to visit one of our galleries in New York, Chicago, or Paris during our exhibitions, or make an appointment with one of our specialists. If you enjoyed this podcast, please share it. Thank you so much for listening. 